city of sound and motion, O city of endless stir, from the dawn of the misty morning to the fall of the evening air, from the night of the morning shadows to the sound of the shipyard horn, we hail thee, queen of the Northland, we who are Belfast born. Songs of the Shipyard, 1924, by Thomas Connolly. And this episode of the Sandy Row miniseries is on the shipyard poet of Sandy Row, Thomas Carnell. The series is brought to you in collaboration with Belfast South Community Resources and also with the support of the South Belfast Urban Village Initiative. I'm indebted to the work of Dr. Conan Parr and Patrick Devlin on the subject of Thomas Carnduff. I've leaned heavily on what they have written before me. Uh, my intention for this episode is not to reinvent the wheel on Thomas Carnduff, nor have I attempted to bring anything new to the public domain. Rather, it's intended to be a summary of the man with some input from other voices as we go along. To understand a writer such as Thomas Carnduff, I think you must firstly understand where he came from. Carnduff was born in 13 Kensington Street off Sandy Row in Belfast on the 30th of January 1886. Carnduff was proud of his Sandy Row heritage. He later wrote, quote, I feel somewhat relieved when I realise that I was born in Sandy Row, where one is not supposed to develop even an elementary knowledge of art rather than in a more fashionable district where artistic ideas are ordinary topics, end of quote. The year that he was born, 1886, was a year in which Belfast was consumed by sectarian rioting caused by the introduction of the first Home Rule Bill. And this was covered in a recent episode of the podcast. If you want to hear more about the factors which contributed to those riots in the 19th century, please do look back at previous episodes of the podcast. His grandparents were Ulster Scots. His mother was from the south of Ireland in Newbridge, County Kildare, and his father, a Presbyterian schoolmaster, was from Drumbo in County Down. He spent his early childhood in Dublin, where he was educated at the Royal Hibernian School from about 1896, and also the Royal Military College. Carnduff lost his parents at a young age, and he had to fend for himself. For anyone, these would have been formative years. Carnduff was later in a street gang, the Pass Clan, who were based in Sandy Row. Again, writing later in life about his teenage exploits in the gang, Carnduff recalled, We were as tough a crowd of young bucks as could be found in the city. Our particular aversion was Catholics. We ambushed them, jibed them, slaughtered them when opportunity came our way. Along with almost half a million other Unionists, Thomas Carnduff signed the Ulster Solemn League and Covenant in September 1912 as an act of protest against the Third Home Rule Bill. He did so at the main signing station in Belfast City Hall. One of the controversial elements of the Ulster Covenant was the line that read, and in using all means that may be found necessary. And this line of the Covenant sent chills through the corridors of Downing Street and also through nationalist districts of Belfast and beyond. Carnduff was seemingly at ease with this implied threat of violence. Not only did he sign the Ulster Covenant, but he became involved with the Young Citizen Volunteers, and according to his autobiography, played a role in the UVF's gun-running operation in 1914, 
or as Colonel Parr has described, the murkier activities of the UVF, with lurid stories of basements and attics packed with rifles and ammunition in the suburbs of Belfast. The Young Citizen Volunteers had been formed in Belfast in September 1912 as a non-sectarian, non-political, quasi-military organisation for young men of all backgrounds. The aims and objectives of the YCV were to develop a spirit of responsible citizenship, to cultivate a manly physique with habits of self-control, self-respect and chivalry, and to assist as an organisation when called upon the civil power in the maintenance of peace. It attracted Catholics as well as Protestants, Jews as well as Quakers, and despite having a, a middle-upper-class flavour, it did not prevent working-class men like Thomas Carndoff getting involved. Carndoff joined the Young Citizen Volunteers Cliftonville Company in Belfast. In his early life, Carndoff worked as a butcher's boy, in a thread and needle factory, in a printing house, as a drover in a linen factory and in the Belfast shipyards. While working in the Belfast Steam Print Company from 1906 to 1914, he revelled in the camaraderie of his well-versed, articulate co-workers. He read widely in order to contribute to their stimulating levels of daily debate on the social issues of the time. Then, in 1914, he started work as a plater's helper at Workman Clark & Co., the Wee Yard, a rival of Harlan and Wolfe, where he toiled for about 17 years of his life. When the First World War broke out in August 1914, there was, of course, no conscription in Ireland, and so Belfast relied on volunteers to swell the ranks of the British Expeditionary Force. Carnduff volunteered to enlist in the Royal Engineers in 1916, and he served at Ypres, and Messines, and these experiences he wrote of in later life. Carndoff survived the war, and upon leaving the army in 1919, he was re-employed at Workman's. This was at a time when sectarian conflict was unfolding in the very industry that he was employed in. On the 21st of July 1920, an expulsion by loyalists of 7,000 nationalists and socialists from the Belfast shipyards was followed by evictions of non-loyal workers in other industries. Sectarian disturbances broke out across the city, resulting in 20 deaths inside three days. These incidents commenced an unsavoury period of tit-for-tat killings and evictions, in which Belfast became the most violent city in Ireland. It was reported that Thomas Carndoff personally came to the aid of some of his fellow Catholic workers by helping them escape across the River Lagan while mobs of loyalists roamed menacingly in the area. When the Ulster Special Constabulary was formed in October 1920, Thomas Carndoff served four years as a special during those formative and often troublesome years of the Northern Ireland state before returning once again to the shipyard. Carndoff remained at Workman's until the firm was wound up in 1935, to the detriment of circa 8,000 workers. It was hard and dangerous work, which often involved working at heights, the fear of which Carndoff never entirely overcame. Accidents were a daily occurrence in the yard, and on one occasion he was taken to hospital after suffering injuries from a heavy spanner which had been dropped from 40 feet. It was in this tough environment of hard labour, lack of work, conflict and camaraderie where Carndoff began writing his poetry. Colonel Parr tells us 
that Karnoff maintained a working class baseline, as he describes it, a working class outsider nature while always trying to write his way out of it, and that he firmly believed that poetry and art should not be the privilege of upper class society, that the workers needed beauty, art and better literature as an inspiration to progress and seek more beautiful surroundings. All his life he had written poetry and in 1935 he formed the Young Ulster Literary Society just 14 years after the Northern Ireland state had been founded. Their stated aim was to promote an appreciation of the arts without any sectarian bias. While the shipbuilding industry in Belfast was reeling in the 1930s, Carnduff came into his own. He wrote for several newspapers and periodicals including The Bell. He published books of poems, one of which was Songs from the Shipyard and another Other Poems, published in 1924. We can hear an example of his poetry as read here by Andrew McNeil. It's called The Song of the Unemployed. We built you graceful structures from a heap of clay and stone. We fashioned out of nothing yonder proud and stately dome. The steeples rising skywards by the hallmark of our skill. And the hands that shaped your mansions have the cunning in them still. We levelled fields and ditches to the city's outward stride. And now you boast its greatness, yet we do not share your pride. Our picks have ranged the hillside, and our shovels smoothed the plain. That your children might have shelter, though your good was not our gain. You flattered us in labour when our labour brought its due. The fruits of all our sweat and toil we shared alike with you. But now our hands lie idle and our hearts are sore with grief. Come the clamour of your curses, whilst your praises grow more brief. Carnduff also wrote many plays. The first Warrant, for example, in 1930. However, it was the production of Workers, his first full-length stage play at the Abbey Theatre in October 1932, that brought Carnduff into focus as a writer. Despite having been rejected by Belfast's Grand Opera House as too inflammatory and working class, the play was well received by the Dublin audience of the National Theatre who stood and cheered his work. And in that moment, an unemployed shipyard man from Belfast had become a playwright. He has followed in the footsteps of St John Irvine, a man who grew up in the shadow of the shipyard and managed to put working class Belfast voices on the stage for the first time. At the end of the evening, and as the audience sang the soldier's song in traditional fashion, Thomas Carnduff joked that he stood respectfully, but hummed the tune of the boiling water to himself. Orangism was in his blood. Many of the menfolk in his family were members of the Orange Order, though they took exception to him joining the independent Orange Order and eventually becoming a worshipful master, as opposed to joining the mainstream organisation. There was a radical anti-authority dimension to this breakaway order and I've been chatting to broadcaster and Ulster Scots enthusiast Mark Thompson about their origins and ethos. Yeah, well, I'm not an expert on, on this, but my, my simple understanding of it is that they were a much more working class, um, much more um, radically inclined, much more traditional Protestant organisation than the mainstream order had become. I mean, they may not be those things today because every organization's context grows and changes and many organizations have to adjust as well. But certainly, I mean, I've heard stories of whenever um, um, orange men left to join the independent, whenever then they wanted to return to the mainstream order, in the minute books, 
whoever was writing the minutes produced red ink and they wrote these particular bits of discussions in red to reference the um the kind of the this the socialist working class dimension of of um of what independent orangeism was about you know there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a radical dimension to it there's a big famous um kind of controversy in the 12th in belfast in in 1902 a guy called thomas sloan who had become um mp for south belfast um william johnson of valley kilbeg is in the, in the in the back of all of this as well but you get a real surprising strength of this around belfast and around parts of county andrew i mean the working class radical politics but yet very traditional um ultra protestant perhaps and um, theological views and it's very difficult for us today to align that with how we now categorize people and maybe maybe that our the problem is is our own categorization and we're too quick to try to neatly put people into boxes and and looking back at these periods it shows you that you can be all sorts of things that uh, that maybe today come to us as a surprise Writing in Eamon de Valera's newspaper, The Irish Press, in 1966, a man called Lewis Gilbert recalled Sandy Rowe and recalled Thomas Carndoff, writing that Carndoff never missed the twelfth and walking to the field. Carndoff had told Gilbert that it was a way of life and something that he was proud of. Despite his orangeism, he was comfortable with identifying himself as Irish, not entirely uncommon among Ulster men in the first half of the 20th century. Carndoff recalled in his own words, I myself was born in Sandy Row, which is a pretty famous uh, rendezvous for Orange Lodges, but I've yet to hear a solitary Sandy Row man deny his Irish nationality. This was written in 1942 in the midst of the Second World War and in the wake of the Belfast Blitz, which devastated parts of Sandy Row. The troubles, of course, changed the sentiment expressed here by Carndoff, and today you'd be hard-pushed really to find a single Sandy Row man, or woman for that matter, who embraces a sense of Irish identity. I, I think that um, what really struck me were those opening words, so I love this Belfast of mine. It's absolutely brilliant, and then he goes on down through that introductory paragraph, and the last sentence of that paragraph says, the history of the town itself is one long chapter of municipal independence and disagreements with the lawful demands of the king's representatives. So he's already totally happy with the notion of Belfast as, as a radical city that isn't just blindly loyal, but that is quite happy to pursue um, liberty as an idea before loyalty. And again, people today struggle with that and they think, oh, conditional loyalty, these people are inconsistent. What's that all about? But I would, I would argue from, from an Ulster Scots perspective that standing up to the king and the monarch whenever they were doing things that were um, uh, a problem for the community is a, is a frequent trend. You, know, you see it in 1560s in Scotland, you see it in 1912, you see it in 1798. Some people would even say you see it in 1985. You know, the people here when the community is under threat are quite happy to oppose the state. Um, but he goes, I mean, what, what, what I really like about that is he gives you this lovely kind of surface, light touch, but very, very informed history of the city. And he gets then straight down into, into Sandy Row. When he talks about growing up in Sandy Row, being born there, um, I think the words he uses are, it's famous as a rendezvous for orange lodges. 
But he goes on and says, but I've yet to hear a solitary Sandy Roman deny his Irish nationality. And it's again, there's a nuance in there that, that, that we don't hear today. Because too often I think, and I'm going to be very blunt here, Irish nationalists will, will often say that um, Ulster Protestants aren't properly Irish. And then some Ulster Protestants themselves will deny their Irishness. But Cardiff isn't in that space. I mean, he's in a very um, culturally diverse space where you can be more than one thing at any one time. And uh, it's really refreshing to hear that. He goes on and he's quite happy to talk about Henry Joy McCracken and Thomas Russell and Jimmy Hope. And of course, that then surfaces in his plays about Castle Ray and so on. Um, but yeah, he also then you know, gets um, very critical of, of the state and the establishment as well. He also gets really critical of what Dublin is doing and Dublin's portrayals of Ulster men. And there's a brilliant piece here where he talks about you know, having seen uh, Sean O'Casey's <clears throat> play in The Shadow of a Gunman. He says, even Sean O'Casey's orange man in The Shadow of a Gunman represents a half-drunken, bragging hide under the table when the row begins to hide. And O'Casey's the greatest Irish playwright of today. I can't have met a great number of orange men. Occasionally, when I travel down to Dublin to watch the Abbey put across what is supposed to be a northern play, I come away with a sore head. I feel like shooting the entire cast, including the producer. Why does the southerner not try to understand us, I think, rather than exploit this tomfool idea of national superiority? I mean, there's a craft and a passion in those words that I think you would actually struggle to find in a lot of our mainstream press today. His orange background makes his friendship with the Donegal-born writer and Irish Republican Patter O'Donnell all the more intriguing. O'Donnell had formed The Bell, which Carndoff had written in, and the two men struck up a friendship visiting each other in Belfast and Donegal. On one occasion, Carndoff presented O'Donnell with an orange sash, which O'Donnell subsequently had framed and proudly displayed. When presented with the sash, O'Donnell joked that, quote, this is the one time that an orange man's handshake is better than a papal blessing. Carnduff had given O'Donnell the sash shortly before he died, and O'Donnell later said, Of all the things I treasure most in the world, that is the one I value most. After Carnduff died, Pater O'Donnell visited the Young Ulster Society to pay tribute to someone who he regarded as, quote, one of the great influencers on the cultural life of Ireland. Carnduff's play Workers was followed then by Traitors in 1934, and Castle Ray in 1935. The Castle Ray play was set in 1798 and characterised Jimmy Hope as the hero of the play. Again, Conal Parr tells us that Carnduff used the figure of Lord Castle Ray to introduce people to Jimmy Hope and his socialist ideals. Audiences will have turned up in the full expectation of seeing a play about Castle Ray, but instead, most of the play was based around this man, Jimmy Hope. Hope was a linen weaver and United Irishman from Brown Square in Belfast who has been described as, quote, one of the most dignified and honourable men Ireland has ever known. He fought alongside Henry Joy McCracken at the Battle of Antrim in 1798. Indeed, 1798 was a favoured period of Carnduff's and it was one that he would return to time and time again in his journalism. More work followed in the form of Birth of a Giant, 1937, the Stars Fortel in 1938, and Murder at Stranmillis. Some of these were performed in the Abbey Theatre in Dublin and the Empire Theatre in Belfast. 
Birth of a Giant was actually a play written for radio. When Carnduff died, his plays receded from public memory, probably because they never brought him fame or fortune. None of his writing really did. Indeed, he remained a working man right up until the end of his days. His later years were spent working as a caretaker at the Linen Hall Library in Belfast between 1951 and 1954. Ironically, the first secure job that he had acquired as an elderly man was also his last. Thomas Carnduff died on the 17th of April 1956 and is buried in Carmoney's Old Cemetery. He left behind a legacy of exceptional writing and social commentary and he used his writings to highlight the plight of the underprivileged in society, to inspire them to realise their higher potential. And he strove to demonstrate that the working classes merited a valued place in modern society. I finished my chat with Mark Thompson by asking him uh, to share with me his thoughts on Thomas Carndoff's legacy. I think somebody like Thomas Carndoff takes you out of our present obsessions and divisions and hobby horses and, and shows us a different way of viewing ourselves and this place. Um, he isn't easily categorised and I find people like that to be the most interesting of all because they really do present us with big questions. Um, I think you can actually, you can line them up with people like um, certainly Richard Hayward who he knew very well and Hayward gets pigeonholed as, as an orange man a lot of the time. But Hayward was also working with Michael J. Murphy from South Armagh on Ulster traditions as a whole. So you can you can be true to yourself and to your own community, your own traditions, but at the same time, see value and honour and integrity and complementarity in somebody else's traditions as well and work together for, for everybody's good. And I think it's wonderful that Belfast is recovering um, Marianne Cragan. I, I think that she's another a figure from our history who's been long overdue, her, her rightful place. But again, she's much broader, I think, than sometimes some of the things I've seen uh, about her recently, where she's been sometimes pigeonholed a wee bit as a proto-Irish Republican. Well, you know, did, does that mean, did that mean in, in 98 what it sometimes means today? Is it the same thing? She's a very orthodox Presbyterian. Um, there's a wonderful biography of her written by her great niece where they're talking about the Scottish ancestry and the Scotch family and all of this sort of stuff. So she, again, is one of these figures that can bring a whole lot of um, threads together. And Carndoff is definitely one of those people. I mean, what, what, I, what I really like about that is that um, these people were authentic in, in their, their bringing together of multiple influences. Sometimes I think a wee bit of what the establishment does today is the cross-community narratives can be a bit contrived and a wee bit curated and forced, slightly artificial. But whenever you read a Carndoff or you look at a Marianne McCracken, it's the real thing. And I think we, we just we need to get back um, a lot of the wisdom that, that people like that were presenting in their own day. Many thanks for tuning in to the Historical Belfast podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please share it on social media. It makes a big difference. Uh, and please give it a rating on whatever platform you're listening. Also, you might consider joining the conversation on Instagram at Historical Belfast Pod, where you can get in touch with me directly and even make some recommendations for future episodes. As ever, I'll be back next month with a brand new episode for your ears only. Until then, 
stay safe.